The world has changed. I can feel it in the dice. I feel it in the character sheets. I smell it in the books. Much that once was is lost, for none now game who remember it. Welcome to The One Podcast, a show all about the One Ring and experiencing Middle-earth through gaming, with your hosts, J.M., Richard, Ben, Calvin, and Chris. Welcome to The One Podcast. The Fellowship has assembled again here at the Green Dragon Inn, and today we are discussing just the One Ring role-playing game, giving you a kind of an overview as to what you can find in it. So let's just dive right in. The One Ring uses some unique mechanics for resolution and Calvin's going to give us a brief give you a brief overview as to how that works. Right. So uh, one ring uh, uses two different types of dice, uses a 12-sided die and a 6-sided die. 12-sided die they call the feat die, the 6-sided die is called a success die. Um, the 12-sided die is numbered 1 through 10 and then it has a rune and a Sauron eye um, and those denote special things uh, where the the rune is a success always a success regardless of what your target number is uh, the the eye is a counts as a zero and there's a lot of times that that will trigger additional mm. things that are not good uh, on your success die, your six-sided die, uh, you got one through three, which are outlined, four and five, which are normal, and then a six, which has a little tengwar rune next to it, uh, and that counts as a, a greater success. And so basically, uh, you always roll a feat die, and then you will roll a number of success die equal to your rank in whatever skill that you're rolling and you will sum up the numbers of what's shown and compare that against a target number if you equal or beat the target number then you succeed if you are lower than the target number you fail uh, you can spend a point of hope to give your to add an additional bonus to your roll equal to whatever attribute is associated with the skill that you're rolling and hope to succeed that way or not uh, that's uh, but from a you know a dice mechanic standpoint that's you know the basics of how it works um, now if, if I remember correctly the rune on the d12 is the Gandalf rune yes correct? Yes, the, the Gandalf. Right, yes, sir. so it is totally appropriate for you players to uh, yell out, I totally Gandalf that role, as it has happened at my table. Uh, GMs never get tired of hearing that when you Gandalf the troll. Or I'm pretty sure they actually like it more, though, when you Sauron. At least, at least Richard does, our GM. <laughs> he definitely likes the 11th better. <laughs> I have to say, there were there was a call it a pleasing number of Eyes of Sauron rolled in my last session of the One Ring. <laughs> Excellent. Very nice. 
so then characters also have a set of traits um, which allow them to if they can invoke a particular trait and say that it applies to a check that they are making it gives them an automatic success um, so where in other systems you know your your traits that you might have might give you bonuses or you know like aspects in fate where you can tag them to you know re-roll or whatever uh, in this system in the, the one ring system it just counts as you don't have to roll you just succeed if you can apply that trait to this situation and over half the group agrees with you then you don't have to make a check and you succeed and it's treated as if you just rolled a success and you move on so i i'm not actually actively running the one ring right now but from what I remember, it seems like that mechanic was very empowering for the players. It really made them, you know, when you say, okay, you know, Christopher, you have boat crafting. You don't even need to roll. You just... Just do it. Fix the yeah. boat and head. Uh, it kind of is a, yeah, Christopher's character has the spotlight. He's yeah. awesome at this. Is that kind of your experience in the games? Um, yes, and traits can be used. You can use them in that way. They're actually... Um, um, so you can use them to automatically succeed there at a task with a common skill. Um, so a good example is um, in our in our last session. I was trying to remember somebody had somebody had shadow lore, and that ended up being really helpful because they could just say, "Oh, I know about this thing," and um, and that falls under shadow lore, you know. And um, and yeah, it is very empowering. You can use it for that, but you can also use it to do things like get a dice roll in a situation where you wouldn't usually get one. So, you know, if the, the GM's trying to railroad you a little bit, um, God forbid, um, uh, you can you can say, but I've got an orc lore um, uh, trait, and I should be able to, you know, have a chance to figure out what it is the, the, these sneaky goblins are up to. Or, I mean, that's a, that's a lean example, but... You, you can use it to get a dice roll in a situation where you wouldn't usually get one. Um, mm. And then you can also use it to gain bonus advancement points. Um, so there's actually there's quite a bit you can do with traits. Um, something I would love to see at my table would be to you know use the, use the traits more because they're so powerful. Yeah. Cool. So and I guess then the one, the one other thing with the you know resolution mechanic is with your success die and that six with the tengwar on it. Uh, that gives you additional degree of success, that's what it is, uh, where if you roll a single six with the Tengwar, then that counts as not just a normal success, but a great success. And if you roll two or more, it's an extraordinary success. And something beyond just success at what your stated desired outcome was should happen. So it's kind of like a critical success... Or, yeah, or a success with style or something like that. Right. Cool. Well, one of the other things that makes the One Ring pretty unique is the characters. Uh, Chris, why don't you give us an overview of how to make characters in the One Ring? Well, you have who you are and, and what you do. But still, for, for the One Ring, it's not quite that... I don't want to say easy, because I don't think this 
really difficult to build a character. But, you know, you have who you are. Um, it's not necessarily... Well, it is your, your race, you know, your, your, your species. But it's far more the culture. Mm -hmm. And that's really what they call it. You're choosing your heroic culture. You know, there are just in, you know, the, the, the main book, there are three different types of men to play. You know, they have elves of Mirkwood, and I know in a later book they have... Um, high elves. Uh, high elves. Yeah, high elves in, in the Rivendell book. I think they're coming out with blue dwarves, or blue mountain dwarves in a later book, and right now in the main book they have the dwarves of the Lonely Mountain. Um, so it's not necessarily the race, it's just, it's your culture, it's where you come from. Uh, your culture gives you certain things that everyone in that culture has, like the cultural blessing. It's something intrinsic to everybody in that culture, and you have it. Not, that's not to say that everything um, from your heroic culture is just given to you without any choices. You do have choices. You get to choose two specialties. You get to figure out what background you want, you, what kind of weapons you're, you are good at. You get to uh, select some, some traits uh, that your character has, but they're all um, from the same grouping, depending on your culture. After that um, is is what they call you know the customization is really you know you, you get to figure out what makes your particular character uh, a standout, what makes them special it would be like uh, your calling. Um, it, I guess you could call it similar to choosing your class, but they they hesitate uh, to call it the class. It's not your occupation; it's more of your motivation. Mm. You know. That's a good way to put it. Um, and, yeah, and, um, you know, the One Ring being, you know, so so narrative-focused, there's no reason you can, you can't, you know, you're telling a story. There's no reason you can't be, you can't start out as a greedy treasure hunter. But by the end of the game, you're, you've, you've gone beyond that. You're, you're, you know, you're, you know, you're not, you're not that anymore. And, and that, yeah, there's <laughs> seems to be far more of a um, yeah character development. I guess is what you what what I'm what I would say yeah. what I would get at. Um, ben, you're the the one here in the group who has most recently gone through this process. What what was your experience building a character? How does it differ from say D and D or yeah? No, basically, as far as the pulling it together, it's pretty straightforward. The number of options is... It's not so much less than other games, than a lot of games you have these days, where, you know, they, they give you a spread of, you know, eight races or whatnot. But it does feel a little more specific um, than you find in a lot of, a lot of settings. And I think probably because it, it is. Um, if you actually think about it, the... The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit take place in a pretty, I mean, it's a, you know, it's a pretty large area, but the people that, that people that area are from a fairly select group. Um, there, it's not, you're not going to have, you know, people wandering in from, from far and wide, as it were. Um, you're not going to find some sort of, you know, Southron assassin showing up. Um, <laughs> so, I'm trying to remember, uh, basically, I... One of the things I really liked about it was the way that they they broke down skills into basically just the basic three attributes, and I think he probably already mentioned that, about a body, heart, and wit. And then um, everything else just sort of feeds off of that, um, which may, keeps it really simple. 
So, and yeah, no, uh, the the s the specialties, the traits, specialties like fire making, smithcraft, orc lore, things like that. Um, again, they're really evocative in the sense that these are things that you don't you're not gonna find fire making in almost any other <laughs> any other role playing game <laughs> as as a specialty. Um, you know, you, most other ones sort of assume either you don't you don't yeah that you're not gonna need to make a fire, but uh, yeah, no. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that came. I have to. Uh, I have to point out that my favorite one is smoke. Yes. It's just. <laughs> it's true. There's actually a couple of, of these that you're not gonna. A couple of skills uh, that you're not gonna find anywhere else, as far as I know. Like song, um, is one that I don't necessarily know. I could. I would say it was reflected almost anywhere else. Um, riddle um, is another one. Um, even like awe being separated from uh, your average diplomacy, which you know they broke it into mm. awe, inspire, and persuade, um, and so they could broke it put it under body, heart, and wits. I'm not sure that I've actually seen that elsewhere. Uh, it being broken into that, you know, into three different categories, and it probably I'm sure someone who's played a lot more games than I has could probably could probably pick one, or find one. Um, but uh, that was that was fairly unique to me, just the way they they broke it down that way. So yeah, I'm pretty sure awe is usually covered by spells in other games. Yeah, that some sort of magical effect. Probably so. I think, or at least the ones I played. I think in um, it's essentially as I understand, it, uh, uh, Richard, it's intimidation, correct? It's under. It's basically when you're using awe, you yes. can basically, you know, that's like roaring in the face of, of your, you know, the orc it's, horde. It's, it's partially intimidation, but it's more nuanced than that. As um, always. Yes, no, well, as always. Um, but it, but it is. It's, uh, um, you know, somebody like, somebody like um, Aragorn or Gandalf um, occasionally inspires awe, even in people who. Right. It's, it's um, you know, and awe, awe, awe can mean um, impressing someone. Um, sure. As opposed to just intimidating, intimidating them. The end of the Prancing Pony, where uh, Strider seems to grow more fair and kind of larger, and Frodo just realizes this isn't just some other scummy guy sitting in the in the bar. It kind of describes, you know. Frodo becoming impressed by him. Uh, that's kind of how I saw saw awe. Yeah. No. Um. Like I said, when I create characters, it's it's it's. I am not a. I'm not a mechanics guy. So it's basically I read through it, make it happen, and then I sort of set it and forget it. Um, and if there's leveling up that has to happen, I figure it out when that happens. So I'm probably not the best person to ask this. Just because I enjoyed it. It was fun, and I I do like the way to have it set up, but. No, I think I think you did a you gave some good insights into it, Richard. What about so the call, we have we have a number of callings that are not quite classes. They're as Christopher said, they're motivations. How do those tie into the lore of Middle Earth? So, if you think about, I mean, the Fellowship of the Ring is sort of your textbook example, I guess, as as close to we're gonna, as it's as close to um, we're going to get. To an actual textbook, <laughs> as far as Tolkien is concerned. But if you look at if you look at the Fellowship of the Ring and you look about why the different different members of the group are there, why they're adventuring, why they're um, you know what their motivations are, you can start to see some of the some of the 
classes, or some of the, the callings, rather, that are reflected here. So, some of your, some of your callings, yeah. So, some of your callings, um, the, the callings that are available, and I think there's actually a new one coming out called Captain, and I'm extremely excited about it. But, yeah. um, but the ones which are, are currently available to us are uh, Scholar, Slayer, Treasure Hunter, Wanderer, and Warden. Um, and uh, each of these different callings you can see in some ways uh, reflected in either The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings. If you just look at The, at the Hobbit, Bilbo's main motivation for starting out is he's a treasure hunter. He's going along because there's a dragon treasure and there's a good chance of adventure. And gosh darn it, those dwarves can sure sing some convincing songs. Um, so he's a treasure hunter. Um, he's somebody who is um, is out looking for you know pale enchanted gold, right? Um, <laughs> on the other hand, you've got um, you've got some of the other members of the of the dwar- company of dwarves who have some slightly different motivations. Um, the one that probably comes most readily to mind is that of Slayer. Um, you've got a lot of dwarves who really want revenge and they want their kingdom restored and um, and that's something that a, a slayer can sort of strongly relate to. Um, then there's Scholar, which I think is, you know, probably my favorite just because I'm a grad student. Um, Amen. But uh, a Scholar, you know, the, the, the knowledge <laughs> um, and the opportun- and the possibility of knowledge. And you, Bilbo's got a little bit of, bit of this in him, right? He's got that deep love of maps. But then somebody else who might be um, a scholar is Frodo. Frodo is, um, he's extremely literate. Um, he's, you know, speaks Elvish, he's conversant in Elvish. Um, there's even a moment where um, he, um, he's, he composes some verse for Goldberry, and he does it in an Elvish form instead of a Hobbit form. Um, Hobbit, well anyway, Hobbit verse always has a, in the Lord of the Rings, always has a specific meter, and Elvish verse always has a different meter, and, and Frodo composes some verse in elven meter for Goldberry. Goldberry says, ah, I see we have an elf friend here um, among us. Um, and um, and so Frodo's a scholar. He likes to know the names of things, study languages, things like that. He's not really keen on going off and dropping this ring, you know, into a volcano that just sort of happens to be <laughs> something that, that is thrust upon him. Um, and then you've got, you've got a wanderer and a warden. Um, um, Wardens are wardens. I think are sort of your ranger characters, right? Your, um, um, I mean, Aragorn is, is a classic example. Um, but uh, your, the wardens are a, another great warden is Bele Kuthalion, who is again my my favorite character in the entire Legendarium. Um, in fact, you know, you could you could argue that uh, that uh, Bele is a warden and his friend Turin is, is is possibly a slayer or maybe a wanderer, depending on when you catch him. Right. Um, but it's it's basically the the calling is not it's don't think of it as like your profession um, at, you know what you do right. at your day job the calling is what called you to adventure so your profession might be anything you could be I mean the 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 company of dwarves they were all basically tinkers and makers of toys according to the Hobbit um, the, Sam's a gardener uh, yeah Sam was a gardener right exactly but they all find themselves. They all find themselves thrust into extraordinary situations because of their calling. I, I think that's where you get that tie into the war. So there, there are still a couple other uh, unique subsystems that the One Ring uses to really define 
its place as a game system where Middle Earth is realized. And one of those is the travel system, and another one is the fellowship phase. So, Richard, can you give us an overview of the travel system? So, the travel system um, is one of the coolest and most evocative things of Tolkien's works in the Wandering System. And basically, in in the Lord of the Rings and in the Hobbit, you have, um, and in the Silmarillion too, you have these epic journeys, and the epic journeys happen between the sort of the main episodes of the story, the things that are driving the plot forward. But there are these long journeys in between that are full of adventure of their own. And whereas in uh, a system like D&D or something like that, you might just uh, gloss over this or do a couple of random, random encounters and say it's two weeks later and you arrive. The designers of the One Ring saw how how important this was as an element of Tolkien's works. And so they worked, worked really hard to build a system for journey that is evocative of that. And so a good lore master, as he's designing his adventure, will have, um, you know, most adventures are going to require some element of travel. And essentially the way that travel works is that uh, the lore master and the players are provided with a map of Middle Earth. Um, the lore master is provided with a version of the map that has the whole thing broken out into a, sort of a hex grid pattern. And then each, each, um, area on the map is arranged into um, difficulty of passage and also type of land. So just as an example, Northern Mirkwood, um, through which the Hobbit, uh, through which um, the, the Company of Dwarves passes in the Hobbit, um, it is um, considered a severe terrain, so it's, it's very difficult to pass through, um, and it is considered wild lands for purposes of, of lawlessness and what the lore master's the lore master's job is to present the players with an opportunity to travel with a problem that has to be solved um, through getting to the destination. The players then get to pick the route, and I actually think this is one of the coolest things. Um, it's the lore master is sort of setting a story and a narrative, but there are some great moments um, in the Lord, in the Lord of the Rings, specifically in the Fellowship of the Ring, when um, players are having when the 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 characters are having to decide which way are we going to take. So if you need to get to the other side of Mirkwood, you might decide to take the elf path. You might decide to go around um, go around to the north through the Grey Mountain Narrows. Um, and if you do that, that might have completely different consequences. It's a different terrain type. It's through a different kind of land. And the things that you're likely to run to are completely different. Run into are, are completely different. Of course, there's there, there's a whole system for the um, the lore master to determine how many days the journey is going to take, how many fatigue tests you have to make. But one of the other things that's really cool is that each person, or at least the first four or five people in the in the fellowship or in the company, are assume the role of um, uh, assume a function of the company. So the four functions are guide, scout. Huntsman and Lookout. And other than the guide, you can have multiple players filling each role. But basically, this means, you know, if, if Aragorn is the guide, um, maybe Legolas, Legolas is the Lookout, and um, and probably, well, I mean, probably Aragorn's the Huntsman too, something like that. But the point is, the point is, everyone has a different role to play in the travel, and those different roles uh, use different skill sets. If you run into a hazard, and it ends up being a hazard for the lookout, that's going to be a different kind of hazard than a hazard for the scout or a hazard for the guide. 
um, and a hazard for the guide might just cost everybody extra fatigue and um, and and um, <laughs> Ben is laughing right now because um, Dofer is the guide for uh, the group in the game that we run and um, Dofer despite the fact that he has a fairly high travel skill has gotten some notoriously bad travel roles which have really cost the group um, <laughs> some time and some fatigue as you're making the journey it's the lore master's role to make the journey uh, interesting to describe the scenery vividly to paint a picture and basically the game happens in narrative time so you're glossing over several days or sometimes even several weeks um, within a few paragraphs of narration as you as you tell the players what they're seeing, where they're going, who they're encountering. But then at, at critical junctures in the trip, the players will have to make hazard, uh, fatigue tests. And uh, the fatigue tests use um, either the travel skill or, or some other relevant skill, depending on the role of the party. And when they make their fatigue test, if they roll an Eye of Sauron, which happens, eh, as I said, a satisfactory amount um, in, this, in, the, in the game that I'm running right now, Suffice to say, with a D12 die, it happens more often than you might, than a crit or a crit fail. Than you might think. Right. More than once out of 12 times. <laughs> and, um, the, when the fatigue test is rolled, if you get an Eye of Sauron, then you get a hazard, and we get to find out, um, who is it a hazard for, um, which roll, and then the person on that roll has to make a skill check to, um, circumvent the hazard, and if they fail, then the GM gets to do something nasty to them. So, anyway... The, the, the travels mechanic is fun enough that, you know, we've done, you know, uh, we did a pretty lengthy session that was for almost the, um, I would say probably half of it um, uh-huh. was the travel phase. Our, our characters were traveling from, trying to travel from the Long Lake to Roscoe, which is a very long journey. So they, they did it in two different legs and they encountered some pretty cool stuff on both legs and, um, and so anyway, yeah, uh, the travel mechanic is fantastic, and I'm only glossing the surface. There's there's a ton that you can do, and there's a lot of freedom that's given to the lore master to make it interesting. You don't you don't have to use the travel mechanic every time your your, your characters make a journey, especially if it's a journey they make often. On the other hand, using it for a journey that they make often is a good way to um, remind Spice everybody. Well, it's a good way to remind everybody just how far apart. Middle Earth is, and how dangerous it can be in Wilderland to get from one place to the other. Cool, and I think there's a lot of these subsystems we're going to have whole episodes on because there's just so much to dig in in detail there. Well, one of the other things mechanic-wise that the One Ring does that I've only seen in a few systems and this one does it best for Middle Earth, I would say, is the Fellowship phase. And basically the idea is, in D&D, you are unstoppable machines of adventure. You are just grinding through orcs and goblins and kobolds and dragons and dragon babies and purple worms until you, you stop basically to rinse your armor off and then you know, once more into the breach. In Middle-earth, there's definitely this feel of passage of years. And even in the books, what you'll, what you'll notice is there are these cycles. There, there are uh, encounters that are happening. You know, uh, the hobbits leave uh, and head into the, the old forest and they encounter Old Man Willow and then they rest. They have this downtime at Tom Bombadil's house and then they head back out and they have an adventure in the, 
adventure in air quotes uh, in the uh, the Barrow Downs, which basically amounts to them getting kidnapped by Barrowites. And then they have downtime in Bree. And there is this cycle of activity and recuperation, activity and this need for a place and time of rest that actually also advances the role of years of the story that, or the role of months in you know, the story, then that's what is encapsulated in the fellowship phase. And basically the idea is your players winter, you can use it at other times, but you know they winter in a, in a refuge, in a safe place. And you have a session every two to three adventures where you have downtime. Characters can spend XP, they can take actions like recovering from corruption, unlocking new sanctuary. Um, you know, upkeeping, you know, creating their sanctuary. Maybe the company disbands for a little bit. They're just these these really neat downtime actions that provide needed breaks in the adventure and provide um, something narrative to do during this time. And it's 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 um. It gives the the players the opportunity to decide what they're doing. It's not the the, yes. the lore master going, okay, here's the fellowship phase. This is what we're doing. It's the players going, this is the fellowship phase. Mm -hmm. Lore master, this is what we're doing. Yep. No. Mm -hmm. And then finally, uh, the the uh, like most game, like most role playing games, you're going to have your combat encounters, your exploration, social kind of encounters, but. The One Ring has some unique twists to that. And so, uh, Ben, why don't you tell us a little bit about combat stances, which really kind of stands out as one of the unique elements. Yeah. Um, whereas, uh, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, because I haven't, it, like I said, I'm not a mechanics guy. Um, but in the One Ring, initiative is, is usually determined not by the by a dice roll as it is by advantages and stance that's correct right In initiative is based off of who is the defender and who is the attacker usually right. in an encounter okay uh, so the defender usually has initiative um but the advantage comes in with you know giving you extra dice to roll during the uh, during the combat encounter, Correct. right? Okay. But then, but then within that, um, as far as the players go, the the turn order in combat is determined by stances, which I think is what Ben is trying to say. Uh, yes. Okay. Well, yeah. Um, but I guess yeah. So you, like I said, attack defense starts out that way. Then you get an opening volley, which I I love because it really does reflect um, a much more I'm not even sure if the term is realistic, but maybe it is. Realistic approach to to, to um, actual combat that you have of the era, um, where you know the first people that's going to actually hit you is the is the is the arrow flying through the air between you and them. Um, so you, have, you always have an opening volley, um, which uh, thrown weapons get one attack, bow bows, um, ranged weapons, uh, which I guess basically are essentially at this point limited to bows um, in Lord of the Rings get two attacks and then you get to choose each of the players chooses a stance for their character 
um, which affects essentially how, where they, how they fight, the advantages that they have, um, but not technically advantages per in, the, in the language. But um, so the first one is the forward stance, which essentially is you're as it's you're right up in their face. Um, it's if I'm trying to think of an example, of, of, I guess, and yeah, that, that's very close combat. That is close quarters fighting. Um, and you roll against a, a much l lower pa uh, parry rating. And it also set, it sets your target number to hit and your target number to be hit. So you're e you hit other people easier, but because you're all up in their face, you get he hit easier, right? That is correct, yes, yes. The target number is, is set. For, for forward stance, it's six plus whatever your parry is. Um, so, and then it just sort of builds, goes, adds three to that number with each different stance. Um, so an open stance is close quarters fighting, but um, you're sort of you're a little giving yourself a little more space. Um, so it's you would roll against a target number of nine plus parry. Uh, those the, those people would act second, um, and a lot of this will kind of depend on on the weapons you've chosen and also your specific skill set. Um, but defensive stance, close quarters fighting. It is close quarters fighting again, but the you get a additional bonus to your defense. Um, so the target number is 12 plus whatever your parry is. They act third. Um, then rearward stance, which is basically reserved for ranged combat. Um, the hero and the opponents stay back and they roll a t uh, target number of 12 plus parry and they act last. I, I think the only other thing is, is that end of each round, as long as you're not you know, entangled or otherwise tied up. You know, at the beginning of each round, you can change which stance you're in. Ah, good, good point. Um, so, as far as so, stances determines determines when you when you your initiative essentially. Um, but the another thing that should probably be noted about combat in the One Ring is there are no hit points per se, um, which. They use endurance. Right. That's that's exactly that's what I was gonna say. That's what it is. It's your endurance, and basically that is the same thing that gets worn down as you're traveling, that gets worn down by uh, fatigue and other things. It also is what counts against you and in combat as well. So if you get down to a certain level, you can you can be wounded or weary, or if everything is is truly sucking for you, um, which it just about did for me a couple of weeks ago. Um, you can also get down to dying, and each of those has a has a especially the dying part negative effect on you. <laughs> cool, but uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, that, that tends to have long-reaching social effects as well. Yeah, I will point out uh, there is no resurrection in uh, yeah in the one. Yeah, it's, it's uh, true. That's reserved for the Maya. Yeah, this is the really <laughs> real world. No, well, no, I was gonna say it. It really only happened that one time with Tenuviel and. Um, and, and that's that's pretty much it. The yeah. door's closed. Oh, and Gandalf too, right? He actually died. Well, <laughs> died. Knew <Yeah>, that's true. <laughs> um, that works, Calvin. Yep. The other the other interesting thing is the social encounter. And I know I'm putting you on the spot, and I know you hate that, <laughs> and I can see your your hate filled grin. Uh, it's like the Joker is coming for me. Um, <laughs> Okay, so social encounters, um, 
they're well defined in the One Ring, uh, where a lot of systems sort of gloss over social encounters. Uh, the One Ring gives you a lot of, I mean, they actually, you know, term it more as, you know, role-playing encounters or things like that. But um, you have a se set of abilities, awe, courtesy, riddle, insight, persuade, inspire. Uh, these things are used in your interactions with other people in the you know, in, in Middle Earth, and based on, you know, whether you want one, one person to be doing your talking, or whether everybody introduces you, themselves at the beginning of an encounter, uh, that will then define who can involve themselves in the encounter at a later point in time, uh, based on, you know, just the courtesy of were you actually introduced, or were you just sort of part of the background? If you weren't introduced properly to the king, you're not going to really have a chance to say anything to him. And <laughs> if you want to take the chance of messing up your introduction role and not being, you know, not showing the correct courtesy and doing, you know, <laughs> talking correctly in a courteous manner, then you you won't really have a huge amount of involvement in the scene now that you know they do give you you know ways that you can affect what is going on but it is certainly not to it's certainly not to the stage where you would see in an you know in other systems where everybody just pipes up when they want to and you just hope people say the right things because Right. <laughs> Players are really good at putting foot in mouth when talking to people way more powerful than themselves. Yeah. And so, you know, ha having this defined system of, you know, how you do that and, you know, how you actually participate in that, uh, I, I think helps to lower the the chance of players really just botching it due to not thinking. Uh, and it's also much more in keeping, I think, again, with the setting, which I think is one thing that we all love about this, is that right. it's, it's not, you know, you're not going to have... You will have instances where, where, you know, Gimli will stick his foot in his mouth, but he's actually going to be sticking his foot in his mouth as opposed to making some sort of humorous aside that everybody's just going to sort of, right. you know, roll their eyes at and move forward. You know, there's... People are going to threaten his, his, you know... His neck <laughs> thereafter. Now, Richard, you're running this. Have you done any social encounters yet? Few, and um, some of them have gone really interestingly. Um, uh, we we had a few go well. I think it was a little. I mean, I, that was definitely a little bit of a learning curve, just getting everybody to sort of, you know, you've got to introduce yourself. And and the, and I love the fact that you have to introduce yourself because in a uh, heroic society, you totally do. I mean. Before anybody talks about it, they have to introduce themselves. And in Lord of the Rings, everybody has to introduce you. Know, like you have to introduce yourself before you talk. You, before you can talk to somebody important, you have to convince them that you are important enough to listen to. And that is that is so cool. And so we had one social encounter two sessions ago, which um, 
I, I sort of I sort of step back and um, let the players let the players run with it instead of <laughs> instead of like trying to guide them and say, okay, now you should ask this or now you should use insight or now you should, should you should use riddle. I just sort of step back to see what they would do once they got past the introduction, which they totally ace the introduction and uh, so they got past the introductions just fine and uh, they asked they had some dialogue. I was sort of expecting somebody would say, uh, well, I want to do an insight roll or a riddle roll or, you know, just sort of try to determine the motivations here or figure out what this woman is not telling telling us. And um, I, I think one or two of them attempted an insight roll and they didn't get anything. They both failed the roll. And, and, they, just, and they just said, okay, I guess we're going to trust her. And then they got ambushed in the middle of the night and it was awesome. Um, <laughs> awesome. Well, gentlemen, any final thoughts on the overview? Or it's awesome. Yeah, if you haven't played it, do. <laughs> it's a, yeah, no. I this is this game is probably more fun than we're making it sound. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it, it it is exciting enough that the five of us are willing to carve time out of our busy schedule and chat about it uh, and put it out on the internet. So there's got to be something there, right? Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> better be <laughs> it, it's just a wonderful system it's it's uh, i think the the most elegantly designed system that i've run across so far um in the in the short amount of time i've been looking at such things but it's just i love the elegance you have been listening to the one podcast you can contact us with your questions and comments at the one ring podcast at gmail.com Follow us on Google Plus as The One Ring Podcast or on Twitter at The One Podcast. Thank you for listening.